Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. That's what we've been going through this summer. And we are coming to the close. This morning, Esther chapter 8. The author of the book writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. Again, Esther chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Savan. On the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, month which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, 
And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. And so the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would give the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, my words, our words, are truly inadequate, insufficient to do all that you would delight to do in our hearts and in our lives. So please come in your great mercy towards us and give the Holy Spirit to do divinely, supernaturally, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So my wife is Jenny. Jenny, raise your hand. There she is over there. Lovely as always. Jenny and I's uh, first date was a good old-fashioned dinner in a movie. And during the movie, people suddenly started lighting up our phones. I don't even know if our phones lit up back then. But anyway, they were buzzing. As it turns out, uh, folks were urgently trying to reach us because we both lived in the Ridge Apartments right across from Bowman Field. And the whole complex was on fire. And as you may know, it burnt to the ground. But we did not because we weren't in the complex. But the people on the other side of those urgent calls, they didn't know that. For all they knew, we were in the complex. We might be caught up in the fire. We might have been in grave danger. Or worse, we might have been dead. And so they were calling us over and over and over again until at last they reached us and heard the good news. We weren't in the perishing building. We were safe. And then... Having brushed against death, we looked longingly into each other's eyes and decided we couldn't live without each other. And the rest is history. Beloved, are we concerned about the state of the unbelieving? Have we retained our sense of urgency for their salvation? Are our feet still beautiful? Uh, Have we put on the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. When do we last try, as Jude says, to snatch people out of the fire? Will we be in earnest to to warn and rescue people from an apartment fire, but care very little at a practical level to warn and rescue people from an everlasting one? I know you well enough by now to know you do have great concern for the conversion of neighbors and nations. And still, as Jude felt the need to really exhort believers 
in evangelism, I feel okay this morning doing the same. And in the final analysis, so too does the Holy Spirit through Esther chapter 8. So let's come to our text, starting in verses 1 to 8 with Esther's winning intercession, which if you've been tracking with us to this point, might seem overdone. Why does she continue her pleading? Right? Haman has been executed. He's the great enemy. He's been executed. His estate has been handed over to Esther, who's put it in Mordecai's hands to do with it as he pleases. And remember, that's, that's quite an estate. You recall it. There's mounds of cash. There's miles of sons. There's this mountainous rise that he has to, to boast in. All the things that could not save him a lick in the end are now Mordecai's, the king's life saver. It appears that justice has been done, but Esther is not seven chapters. Esther's ten chapters. And that's because none of that stuff that all the world would just die to have is satisfying to one who is rapidly growing in her Abrahamic identity, that is, as a child of faith. There's something more important to Christ-reflecting people than collecting the world's comforts. So as John Piper would put it, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it by being content with cash and clout and cozy couches, all the things incessantly bandied about us. If they're given, they're given, but don't take solace in them. Don't make them the sum of your life. While you are on earth, and it is not a long time, live above the sun. Do you know one way that you do that? By prizing and pursuing the good of God's people. It's by publicly identifying with the heaven-bound eagerly cultivating a love for them and unswervingly committing yourself to their salvation. Esther has Haman's whole world handed to her everything in which that man boasted and it's as nothing to her. Her affections and intentions for God and His people cannot be sidetracked by those things. Those people are her priority. Next to Christ and family, I would just ask us, are we, as a church, more than all the world to one another? What receives the bulk of our affections and our energies and our activities? Now, granted, we, we have much to do from day to day, things that demand our, our great attention, just perhaps too much of it just perhaps too much of it, if we give little to no attention to the good of our family in Christ. Practically speaking, do you love your church? I don't mean the building, I mean the people. Do you love your church? This gathering of people for whom God in Christ bled and died. Well, Maybe it will help us towards such care to see as here that those saved... We're not always safe. 
Yes, justice has been done, but a great injustice still abides. Haman has been executed and his estate has been subjugated, but however the enemy is dead, he yet still speaks. His edict of death remains in force. The king's wrath has abated, but Esther still has neither her wish nor her request, so she now goes to the king again. And so, beloved, see, not only her priority then, but her persistence also. She's literally become a biblical example to us of asking and seeking and knocking, and asking and seeking and knocking, beating persistently and importunately upon the king as Jesus' parabolic widow until at last he caves. Do we desire of God this sorely? Is there anything we rightly seek so desperately? Apparently, again, the deliverance and safe travel of God's people on their way to glory is one of those things. Would you make that part of your praying this week? Would you ask God to help you intercede for God's people the way that Esther does? See how she throws her whole soul into it in verse 3. She falls at his feet, weeping and pleading with the king to avert Haman's evil plot against the Jews. Restraint has been thrown off. It's been cast off. It's now just a flood of delivering love for my people, God's people. One of the striking items in Esther is how quickly her love grows for God's people. It's paradigmatic for us in the sense that as her understanding of God's purpose with them has grown, so has her love for them. As her identification with them has grown, so has her love for them, which is how it ought to be for us. Also, we will grow or should be growing in our love for one another as we grow in knowing who and what we are in God's great plan of redemption. Our affection. For Christ's people will rise and fall with our grasp of, it's a big theological term here, ecclesiology. What the Bible says about the church. Well, Esther's grasp on God's purpose has led her to plead with all her heart for God's people. And this evil king responds in still more mercy. He extends that golden scepter. And so Esther has her life. And she now rises. But I want you to see she rises still discontentedly to seek her request. She has her wish, but what about my request? Her people are more to her than her own life. Her own life is not enough. My people too. And as Christians, I hope that sounds familiar to us. That is the very affection of the cross of Jesus. And it comes all the clearer in verses 5 to 6. If you look there, on the grounds of his affection for her and her inability to bear even the thought of her people's destruction, she appeals, wait for it, to the king's moral compass 
for a revocation of Haman's edict of death if the thing seems right before the king. And if you've been tracking with us over the first seven chapters, it's probably logical to be asking ourselves, does this king even have a moral compass to appeal? Well, even a broken clock is right. A couple times a day. And let's not discount, let's not discount one, that no person is as evil as they could be. Yes, we are born totally depraved, but on account of God's common grace, few are, if ever, utterly depraved. And so even the worst of men with the darkest hearts can still give some good light of God's image upon them. And for evangelistic purposes, that's not a bad place to start with lost people. To show them and say their own inherent sense of justice, however buried it's been by sin, that they give evidence of a just creator who longs to be reconciled to them through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But also here, let's not discount the power of one's faith to inform another's unbelieving conscience. Jesus calls us salt and light for a reason, church. Do you think perhaps the king has been influenced as to what is right by Esther's righteousness? It's a sad word on the church that far too often today she's no different from the godless around her. She's just tried to baptize the worldview and ways and works of the world. So that really, at the end of the day, she's just practically indistinguishable from it when we are actually called to be the pace setters and the needle movers as to what is right. God's kingdom come. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that means we need to know the truth and we need to live by the truth and we need to stand for the truth and we need to speak of the truth in the hope at least of rubbing off on the wayward heart. Esther is now exemplary in this and it begs the question, are we? It's one of the things I talked to Nicholas about uh, during his time in Florida, serving with crew there, is how is he, you know, sharing the gospel with unbelievers. And he mentioned that he had some opportunities to do that, but that one of the greatest ways that he was able to be impactful was just by being salt and light around them. He was rubbing off on them. Are we? Well, one other angle before we head along is back to the diamond of intercession. I just want to spin it a few ways for us. Let's remember that Esther's intercession is being made on behalf of those who are under a decree of death. So, are we interceding for those who are under the decree of Adam's death? That is, are we going before our king who loves to have us go before him Asking him to save our unbelieving children, unbelieving spouse, unbelieving roommates, unbelieving neighbors, 
near and far from their sins. Are we doing that? That's one spin. Here's another, and it's pressing. I mentioned that we ought to have a heart to pray for one another because we understand, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, right? The lion is still prowling around the saved. Uh, We need spiritual supports. But in some places, maybe even more akin to the situation of the Jewish people in Esther, God's believing people, His people in Christ, are, are facing live and literal bullets. This is where I'd ask us to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Like Esther, they recently went before their government in bold identification with Jesus, desiring the ability to worship freely and without fear of penalty, if not for themselves, at least for future generations. And the devil has started to roar. Their enemies are hunting them down. Families are being literally ripped apart. Young girls are being stolen away and pillaged. And some are even being martyred in the streets. So we just need to pray. I just want to ask us to bow our heads and pray for a moment. Okay? So let's do that. Oh Lord, we can't bear it. So we bring it to You. Please, deliver Your people from the enemy's decree of death. Hide them. And at the same time, please help them to stand fast for You. Hold them fast. Let their hearts be filled with the joy of resurrection, even while they anxiously wait on Your will to be done. Please enable them to trust as they have said that You are King. All You do is right. And so let it come as You've said to their good in the end and help us, please, Lord Jesus, help us to do all we can to help them. May it be all to Your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. A last angle here, and we'll go on as we must. But dear ones, if Esther, if we cannot bear the destruction of God's people, can Christ bear it? No matter our trials or their intensity, the answer is ultimately in the cross. He who died for you to deliver you from the edict of death do you will not suffer his sacrifice to be in vain. It cannot be. And so I just want you to take heart in Jesus today. He will not allow us to finally succumb to anything that would otherwise destroy us forever. What can separate us from his love? Nothing in all creation, Paul says. Well, in verses 7 to 8, the king responds. And he grants Esther and Mordecai all authority in heaven and on earth to write a counter-edict to Haman's edict. 
And in that grant, we again see the irony that this king, great as he thought he was, is not the true sovereign of the world. Okay? He's just a man rashly making infallible decrees only to later prove the fallibility of them and him. Now, thankfully, our God is not a king like Ahasuerus. Right? Our God's yes is yes, and His no is no. He says what He means, and He means what He says. God never has to go back and correct Himself. Okay? He's more true. He's more righteous than this king. In fact, He is perfectly so. There's some really bad news related to that that we will couple with some really great news. The fact that He's perfectly righteous and true means His edict of death in the garden on account of Adam's sin and ours in him, is not only totally right, but it is truly irrevocable for us. We sinners have no hope in ourselves of deliverance. The only hope we have is a mercy that satisfies such justice. The only hope we have is a grace that suffices for such righteousness. The only hope we have is a gift of love that saves from such wrath. And that gift of love is the death of Jesus Christ for us. Only by His intercession on the cross can sinners under the sentence of death be delivered and pardoned and granted new life and eternal life. The gospel of life is God's counter-edict to his edict of death on account of sin. The one has to stand even as the other works to save us from it. And so here we get a type of the gospel that even though it is not nearly as wonderful, it is wonderful enough to be globally and urgently published. You see it? So let's talk Mordecai's life-giving edict picking up in verse 9. It's been two months and ten days since Haman's edict fell like death upon the Jewish people. Seventy days have passed of hellish horror, living under the probability that unless someone intervene, they are doomed to a soul-sickening end. And it's into that grief that Esther has arisen. She's identified with them and laying down her life, gone into the king for them, but as yet, she hasn't come out of that tomb. There's been no word on her attempt. Was it successful or not? Was it only faithful or was it fruitful too? Would God's people be saved? They don't know yet. Well, that at least be given the right to save themselves as necessary. If Haman's edict can't be revoked, the next best thing is an attempt at curtailing it by legally weaponizing those destined for the slaughter. It's an edict of, it's an edict of deterrent against the edict of death. That's what this is. Ultimately, as we see in verses 11 and 13, it gave Hebrew people the provisional right to defend themselves in the event they were attacked. That in the event is very important. It put them on the defensive, not the offensive. 
In short, they weren't sitting ducks anymore. They were equipped, if threatened, to fight for their lives without penalty. So, if you decided, if you decided to sympathize with Haman against God's people, number one, with Haman hanging on the gallows, you were a fool. And, number two, you quite literally put your own life and your family's life on the line in doing so. And there would be no ignorance on the matter on account of this edict. It was made out to all the world and to every people in their own script and language, and no less to the Jewish people, those who were under the decree of certain death, that they were now allowed to fight for their lives and take vengeance on anyone who tried to take their lives from them. It was the very word of life support for them, and as such, it could not wait to be spread abroad. Before we go there, a preview of next week. Was it right for them to be ready to take vengeance on their active enemies? And are we granted to follow suit? It's a fairly massive issue. And again, in short, I think the answer has to be yes, it was right for them. But in the end, the answer has to be no, it's not right for us today. Now, there's a lot to hash out there, so I invite you to come back next week. But suffice it to say that the New Testament flips the call to Israel here on its head for the church today. Here, they're to be ready to take vengeance. There, in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, we're told never to avenge ourselves, to leave it to the wrath of God, and if we're to be ready to do anything, it's to love our enemies and share the gospel with them. And in between those poles is Christ, crucified, raised, and ascended. We saw it in 1 Peter, didn't we? How His cross and His grace to us and His promise of vindication in the future has taken this kind of holy war out of our hearts and out of our hands. What wrath was due us, Christ suffered for us. And what vengeance is due others for their sins against us, Christ also either paid away for them or will see to it that they receive full payment in hell. And so, when imperiled, what do we do today? Well, we commit ourselves to Him, cast our cares upon Him who cares for us, and we bear the cross. We go through the labor pains of cross-bearing love. That's the way of Christ. We as His disciples are called to follow Him. Doesn't mean we can't defend, for instance, our families or our lives if and when they're threatened. But holy war offensive or defensive, has been taken off the table for Christians by the gospel. At one time, as one put it, it was, quote, necessary for the survival of the Messiah's race. See? His geopolitical people. Only until God's redemptive purposes were actualized in human history on the cross of Jesus Christ. And now everything is different. Now, 
our marching goes by the beat of the great commission. It's not to see our enemies destroyed to bring about the Savior. It's to see our enemies saved by the Savior that's been brought about. How urgent we should be to do all we can to see that. Do you see all the speed in our text? Did you notice it? Swift horses, hurried rides, by urgent command of the king. Right When people's lives are on the line, will anything else do but speed? Right There's reported danger, and you've seen it, offshoots the police car. There's a life imperiled, offshoots the ambulance. There's a child running into the street, offshoots the parent. Right? There's a novel virus, and offshoot the people tasked to offset it. When I was four, I climbed over my neighbor's fence. I was not supposed to do that. They had a pool, and uh, I get in, got in one of the donuts, whatever you want to call them, the inner tubes or whatever. I was so small, though, that once I was in the water, I, I slipped through. And would have drowned. <laughs> I, was, I was all alone. No parents around. But in God's providence, our neighbor was home. And he saw me in the water going up and down from the bay window in his kitchen. And he ran out and he dove in and he pulled me out of the water. I don't even know his name. I mean, that was a long time ago. I don't know his name but I'm alive because of his urgency. He was a good neighbor to me. Are we being good neighbors to souls under a certain sentence of death? As a week ago, are we being the embodiment of safety measures on the slippery slopes? Their foot shall slide in due time. Discerning the unbeliever's peril, are we speedily urging them to turn from their sins and to trust in Jesus? Are we hurriedly delivering the good news of life? We have a counter-edict. Not at all to drive a mutually exclusive wedge between them. But I see folks urging people left and right to get vaccinated from a virus that at worst can only take our lives. It's like Paul in Athens. Every rationale, every apologetic, all the data, all the time. Check your Facebook feed. It's there with a passion. Why? Because they believe in it. They believe in it. And they want to see people spared. They want to see the danger averted. And so they are urgent about it. And I just wonder, I just wonder, what would happen if we were equally earnest in urging people left and right to get the blood infusion that will wipe the sin away that at worst would absolutely take our souls to everlasting hell. And thing is, Christ's blood is better than the vaccine for this virus. It's 100% effective with no ill side effects, and you never need a booster shot. 
Church, a virus, along with many other things, may take your life and then it's done. But sin, if left alone, will go beyond death and ruin you everlastingly. What people are doing and advising to save and safeguard lives is good and it is critical, just not as much as what Christ has done and we're to preach for the saving of immortal souls. Are we putting the emphasis on the right syllable? Are we most urgently sharing Jesus? With those who are sick with sin. Well, by command of the king, Mordecai's counter edict goes out like lightning. And we see the world's initial response to it, starting in verse 15. This may be my, my favorite verse in the book because of all that it typifies for us. Remember, under the decree of death, there Mordecai was covered in what? Sackcloth and ashes. But here and now, he comes out from the presence of the king, clothed in royalty, majesty. He who once looked like death, was under death, was set for death, has now, we might say, arisen, and is seen in the splendor of new life. In God's providence, it's, ra- it's riches for rags, it's, it's, it's beauty for ashes, And it's the cause of great, even global, rejoicing. Beloved, can I just tell you this morning, we not only have a crucified Savior, we have a risen one. And that changes everything. It means our God is God indeed. It means our king is on the throne. It means our salvation is secure. It means no enemy in our lives, no evil, however sick and grievous, gets the final say. Jesus does. And know how that ought to rejoice our hearts this very moment. Our present day can be excruciatingly saddening and maddening, but here alone in the heart's sight of the risen Jesus, we find what is unbeatably gladdening. He's died for us and risen for us. He's gone into the King, as it were, and come out again in affirmation of His saving work, clothed in sovereign majesty. Do we not then have light and gladness and joy and honor? The Jews had all that, verse 16, over a counter-edict that gave them the right to fight for their mortal lives, and won't we have it over a counter-edict that's given us the unmerited right to life everlasting? We don't have to fight for it. Christ has fought it for us. And Christ has won it for us. We have only to receive what He freely then offers. Beloved, what characterizes us then? It should be Christian, listen, you should be every day characterized by light and gladness and joy and honor, even in sorrow. 
Rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. Circumstances are not sovereign. He is. The resurrection shows us that. You see, for them, uh, the battle's not evidently won. It's still to be fought. There's chapter 9. And still, what celebration? A feast? A holiday? And it wasn't restricted to God's people in Susa. Right? As the news went around, all God's people, wherever they were found, were found rejoicing in this news. And that, that ought to be our heart too. Not just that we'd be rediscovering the gospel, but that every church everywhere all over the world would also be rediscovering the gospel and that genuine awakening marked by true affections for Christ would follow in its wake. Right? Oh, to see it. Oh, to see genuine awakening from Trinity Wesleyan just down the street all the way to our afflicted sister churches in Afghanistan. May God be pleased amid all the seeming chaos to sovereignly center His people again in the truth and power of the biblical gospel. And beyond us, who knows what such recentering, what such radical joy in Jesus will do among the nations and the lost around us. You see, in Susa, in Susa, the capital, they see Mordecai now, and the whole city shouts with joy. And as the counter-edict advances through all the world, fear fell upon all. So it says, what does it say there? Some, some people who weren't even Jewish declared themselves to be Jewish. So, in a book that began with Jews hiding their Jewishness from the world, many now from the world are hiding by a kind of conversion to faithful Judaism. That's incredible. It's quite the turn of events. Are we seeing to such a turn of events in our society? Collectively, are we letting out such a shout of joy in Christ that neighbors and nations feel the earthquake and are driven in good fear to our good and gracious King? Are we muddying or are we clarifying the line between us and them? Because just so will Christ be clear to the lost. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There is light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. So unbelieving friend, as that song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The other day, my Lydia took hold of a rope that snapped. And she fell to her harm. And Jenny noted that's because she trusts so fully in those ropes they're going to hold her up. And so she puts her whole weight upon them. Friend, every Savior you make for yourself is like that rope. Snap to your harm. But Jesus is not like that. If you trust Him 
fully. Put your whole weight upon Him. He will fully save you. You will never fall. Won't you do that this morning? Beloved, how beautiful do you think those feet were that so urgently delivered the good news to God's people under the decree of death? How beautiful would have been that knock at the door of the house of mourning? How beautiful that command, how beautiful that call to those who knew their danger. We need to understand, unbelievers are unbelievers because they don't know they're under a just edict of what will, if not averted, amount to everlasting condemnation. And nor then do they sense their need for Jesus. And so it's incumbent upon us to set beautiful feet in the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. What are our marching orders? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Who then will we urgently call today to speak of Jesus? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Oh, please, save anyone here who is lost. And in the hearts of those that you have found, who have laid all their weight upon you already. Please weigh us down happily, joyfully with the Great Commission. Set it in our hearts. Relieve us from apathy. Awaken us for the sake of your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.